Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. I got a tweet recently from a guy on Twitter with the handle at NorfolkNNChance. It read, you really need to get this guy on your podcast. He's a Green Beret and served in Vietnam. What he did is absolutely jaw-dropping and makes Rambo look like a girl guide. It was a great suggestion. John Stryker Mayer was part of a special forces outfit called SOG. They operated behind enemy lines and were so secret that the White House would take 30 years to acknowledge publicly that they even existed. John is going to explain who they are, what they did, and give us some intimate details on some of their hair-raising missions. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we get into this week's episode, a massive thank you to Manscaped who are supporting the episode. Manscaped have launched their fourth generation trimmer, the Lawnmower 4.0. Features a cutting edge ceramic blade to reduce grooming accidents thanks to their advanced skin safe technology. Now I feel comfortable shaving my boys, even while I'm talking to you. Manscaped are also offering us an exclusive 20% off and free worldwide shipping. Just use the code ARS20 when you visit manscaped.com. John Stryker Mayer, thanks very much for coming on the show. Well, thank you, Andy. It's a pleasure to be here. Oh, thank you. Well, let's set the scene. So you, you served in Vietnam in an outfit called SOG, which is Special Operations Group, right? Can you tell me a little bit more about them and, and what they did? Well, that was the original title. During the Vietnam War with Special Forces, we had uh, issues across the fence in Laos and Cambodia. Our government had went into a, an accord where we said we'd have no combat troops stationed in Laos or Cambodia. Of course, the communists agreed. They signed whatever they signed, but they didn't abide by it. So by 64, it was obvious that they were lying. The CIA operation in attempt to monitor it wasn't working well. So they turned to the Green Berets, Special Forces. So in the very beginning, they called it the Special Operations Group, but they changed it to Studies and Observations Group, SOG, because they wanted to hide the budget for SOG in the Navy budget. So if Snoopy reporters came along and go, Studies and Observations Group, ah, oh, that's boring. Give me the good stuff. And they hid the war for eight years that way. It started in 64. It took a while to get things cranked up with air assets, teams trained. And uh, by the time I arrived there in 1968, which was four years later, we had six FOBs. It was also the worst year in terms of our casualties. Uh, the NVA, by that time, had 25 to 30,000 troops in Laos, anywhere from 50 to 100,000 in Cambodia that would come across the border, attack our bases, our allies, and then they would retreat back to Laos and Cambodia, lick their wounds, move supplies south down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. So that's why they had SOG to see what they're up to, wiretaps, POW snatches, things like that. It was so secret, wasn't it, that it was completely denied by the U.S. government for like 30-odd years. So when you joined this organization, like how did you find out? Because it's so secret. It's not like when you join the Army or you sign up or you get drafted or however you get you make your way into, into the Army. You, you don't put your hand up to join this organization or it's not a goal that you set out to join this organization because you don't know it even exists. How did that come about? How do you get involved in this organization? <laughs> well, keep in mind, now this is, I enlisted in 1966, December. The war had been going on. By now, there had been the first Medal of Honor was awarded to Roger Donlin, who was a young captain at a Green Beret A camp. So there had been a book out, The Green Berets, which talked about Green Berets in Vietnam, and they mentioned that there were other missions, but they didn't talk about secret missions. They talked about A-teams, which was a 12-man A-team, which had an officer, an executive officer. And then there were five different training areas. One was commo, weapons, explosives, intelligence, 
and medics. And the medics were the best trained medics in the world at that time. And they still are the Green Beret medics. They were in training for over a year. And it's very intense, rigorous training. So the book talked about A-teams. And when I went through training group to become a Green Beret, we heard about from our instructors. We had instructors that had been to Vietnam two or three times. So I go through training group in 1967. And all the instructors say, look, when you get to Vietnam, they're going to come out and say, we're looking for volunteers. They won't tell you what it is. Don't do it. Just go to an A camp, learn how the A camps work, learn how to be a traditional Green Beret. That's hard work. And then later on, you might learn about what these other projects are. So we go through the in-country training. This is May 1968. We get through the in-country training. And sure enough, the last day, here comes a little guy. Hey, we're looking for volunteers for a project. So Johnny McIntyre, my buddy, goes, well, what, what project, Sarge? Sorry, either you're in or you're not. So the movie was out in 1968 with John Wayne in the Green Berets. And we go, what would the Duke do? If the Duke were here, he'd volunteer for it. He'd go for it. So we all went for it. Two days later, we had our top secret briefing. We went into a classroom. We'd taken out our pens and papers and stuff, ready to take notes. We'd been students for over a year. And the sergeant major walked in and said, put that shit away. This is a top secret briefing. And in front of us, each person had a piece of paper. Said, this is a, an, an NDA, a non-disclosure agreement. Sign it if you want to join our operation. And if you do sign it, you can't talk about it for 20 years. You can't tell your mom, your girlfriend, or your priest. You just can't talk to anybody. So we all signed it. And then he pulled the blanket down off the map of Southeast Asia. So you have South Vietnam, I-Corps up top, two-corps, three-corps, four-corps. To the left, going west, was Laos, and south of Laos was Cambodia. Hence the secret war, and they explained how the NBA were bringing supplies, manpower, down the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was not a trail, it was many trails that would branch off into South Vietnam. And whenever they bombed it, they had repairmen and local and business people who were forced to uh, work with the NVA. And if they didn't work when they would just kill them. So what did they say that your primary function would be? Well, we had to know what the enemy was doing. And so our primary function was to go out, the basic would be a point reconnaissance. For example, if there's a bridge or something going on, they want you to go to a specific point. Sometimes we had intel about American POWs or POW bases, try to go to the base, try to find it, locate it. And if you locate it, try to rescue the Americans but they were always well-defended and I'm not aware of any of our teams ever actually getting to an NVA base. But then the other missions were wiretap. We would wiretap enemy phone lines, try to capture a POW, bomb damage assessments. So after a B-52 would do a bomb strike, they wanted us to go in to see, to assess it, take pictures, see what damage had been done. And then we had bright light. If a recon team or if a pilot was shot down, our team would go in and get them. Those are called bright lights. And on a bright light, you would go in very heavy. No food, maybe one canteen of water, and the rest would be ammunition, extra hand grenades, bandages, and body bags. And body bags. That's grim. Very. What we didn't realize until long after the war was that SOG had the highest casualty rate of the war exceeded 100% casualties. Oh my God. Did you ever find a pilot when you went into do a bright light? I did not. Others did. Yes, sir. On my team, I had two tours of duty. And, and at the end of my first tour, I was back in Massachusetts with 10th group. My team went in to rescue pilots that had crashed and the crash was so severe that both were dead and the engine compartment, when it crashed, came back and literally crushed the pilot and the, what we called a cubby rider. Cubby was the forward air controller. And so the cubby rider was there. He would talk with the teams on the ground. Well, they had this, um, it was an O2 assessment. It had two seats side by side. And when it crashed, it literally, the engine department came back and crushed them to death. And the team went in and they were able to establish that they were dead. They took pictures and they were under intense enemy fire and then they uh, left without being able to extract the bodies because they were so immersed in the wreckage of the plane. Wow. When you guys were on the ground, because I know you're, you're completely off the radar, you were told that, you know, if you were caught or you, you, you weren't dressed like 
normal Green Berets or if you're caught, the, the government would deny your existence and say, you know, they're not, they'll pretty much disown you. <laughs> you. Did that mean you couldn't call in airstrikes and things like that? Because you said on the movies, whenever someone gets in trouble, that they're on the phone and the napalm comes in. And like, how alone were you? Well, what the government wanted was plausible deniability so that if we were captured or got our dead bodies, they didn't want anything that said special forces or U.S. Army or U.S. anything. So we went in with sterile fatigues, no dog tags, no photos, no letters from mom or girlfriends or anything like that. We did have American weapons. That was the premise of what we operated under. When we made enemy contact, we had Air Force, Marine Corps gunships, Army gunships, Cobras later. And of course, we flew in by helicopters, including the South Vietnamese Air Force, which had amazing, heroic, fearless pilots that were just as good. We stack them up against any Americans. I'm alive today, thanks to them and to our American aviators. There's an amazing story that we'll get to later on about oh, yeah. one of those South Vietnamese pilots rescuing you. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a crazy story. Well, there's a lot of crazy stories in your book, um, and, and we'll, we'll pick out a few of them as we go. As much as you guys were under the radar, the NVA, the North Vietnamese Army, they knew who you were, though, didn't they? They, they, had a, a, they? they had bounties on your head and dedicated teams hunting you, didn't they? They did, yes. And by 68, we, during our briefings, our pre-mission briefings, we had heard that uh, the NVA had sappers. And these were the highest trained North Vietnamese Army soldiers that were trained to track us to find us and to kill the Americans. And on top of that, in August of 68, those sappers hit our base camp in Da Nang. They planned the attack for over a year. And when they hit it, they hit it on a moon, a night with no moon. And they hit after midnight. And we had also had a promotion board at that base. And they had just changed some command structures where there was more officers on that base, was FOB4 Da Nang. They hit, and the bottom line was they killed 16 Green Berets in one night and wounded many other. It was the highest casualty rate ever suffered by special forces in the Green Beret history. So we knew about the sappers. And then we had teams where the sappers would be hit them. They would be wearing only a loincloth, AK-47, maybe a bandana. They would kill just the Americans. And if the indigenous people on the team didn't fight back, they would let them go. So we had a couple examples of that, where that specifically happened, where a team was hit, the Americans are killed, and the indigenous troops escaped and evaded. So by 69, they had over a company of sappers trained. And I'm told that by 71, they had a full battalion, which would be over a thousand men that were trained to do nothing but hunt us, to kill us, they killed an American. They had a I Killed an American award that they got. And they also got an award, and they were heroes to the communist regime. Wasn't that a plan from the sappers, the North Vietnamese Army, to leave the indigenous troops in your team alive to create almost a uh, trust issue within the team back on base because you'd have these indigenous troops that were fighting for you guys come back still alive or the Americans were dead and all of a sudden people were saying, well, hang on a minute, those indigenous troops, why, why did they survive? Yeah, it was, a, it was a psychological warfare. It was done that way in, in an attempt to create derision between the indigenous people on the team and the Americans. Now, in my case, with our team, our Vietnamese, guys, South Vietnamese were amazing and we never had that problem because if we got hit, they would have died fighting with us side by side. But the psychological impact of those teams getting hit like that with the indigenous personnel surviving, you're right. It was a psychological impact. In uh, January of 68, uh, they hit one of our teams, one of the first teams that came out of uh, FOB4. They killed several of the team members and then one of the team members, the team leader, was wounded. They kept one American alive. They captured him, kept him alive, and then they burnt the Green Beret with a flamethrower, killing him with a flamethrower. And after they tortured him, tried to get him to talk. 
And they said, take that back to your people. Tell them what they're up against. We, the same thing's going to happen to you the next time you come back. So the, the communists did not fool around. And like I said, we had over 100% casualties. And the way you get 100% casualties is some men had a Purple Heart is awarded to U.S. soldiers if you're wounded in combat. So some of our Green Berets had eight, 10 Purple Hearts. They had different missions. They would get wounded. So we had so many people either were wounded, killed in action, or went missing in action. So today, there are still 50 Green Berets missing in action in Laos and Cambodia just from the Secret War. And there's an additional 83 aviators who died supporting the Green Berets on the ground. The combat was that intense, that ferocious. Did you ever get hit? A few times, but I was very fortunate. Just shrapnel, nothing like a bullet wound or some of the men losing legs or arms or fingers, things like that. You know, I was very fortunate. The recon guide smiled on me. What happens when you get hit? Do you just scream medic or is that? <laughs> well, it, it depends. The Green Berets had medics. The corpsmen were the Marine Corps medics. And they were Navy personnel that were trained to be medics. And they had outstanding medics in the Marine Corps. So if, if we had anybody that was wounded, depending on the situation, whether they would yell for help or a fellow teammate would realize that they were hurt and begin to apply first aid. And then, of course, survive the battle and then wait for the helicopters to come pull you out. When you first arrived at your first base, what were your thoughts? Because... It was a bit of a a bit of a culture shock, you know. Not just the Americans and 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 soldiers that were there. There were, there were prostitutes everywhere as well, wasn't there? Well, <laughs> yes. Well, that what you're thinking about there was the first night we were at a safe house in Da Nang. Da Nang was 50, 70 miles from our base, so we went to the safe house, stayed there overnight because they had to arrange the flights in the morning. And so, yes, it was at that safe house that you know there were prostitutes. I went up for a shower. <laughs> so I'm in there. There's another guy showering. I go and take a shower. And in the corner, there's this young lady down there douching out with Coca-Cola. And she was a prostitute. And there's a lot of beds up there. And you heard a couple of guys being very active with their, with their women up there. So welcome to the secret war and continue to march. Getting into the drop zones and getting inserted into missions, you'd be jumping out of choppers a lot of the time. There's quite an interesting bit in your book where you talk about elephant grass. The, the picture I got, and I could be wrong, is that so elephant grass could either be a foot tall or it could be 12 foot tall. But when you're hovering above it, you, you can't really tell. So sometimes uh, you might jump out of a chopper and you might have this massive drop or you might be landing on the ground. So how did you, how did you kind of gauge that and making sure that you didn't jump out too early and when your chopper was too high? Well, we, we learned from other people. We had, in my first few months, we had a lieutenant that broke his leg jumping out. He jumped too soon. And they were literally in the elephant grass. So A, if you're going in, you try to avoid elephant grass for, for a landing zone. But if that didn't happen, you had to wait until you could visibly see. Because the prop wash would generally push it aside enough that you could get a pretty good understanding of just how deep in you are. And in my case, because, you know, when you start to go into the hover, you want to get out. Mm. <laughs> but on the other hand, you don't want to get out and break your back. So we made a point, And sometimes the, the crew chief would be going, come on, go, go. No, wait, I don't see the ground. <laughs> you just had to stand, stay in the helicopter until you were confident. So I was the team there. When I ran the team, nobody left until I saw that ground. And I was sure that it was only, a, like you said, a foot or two away. With the chopper rides is gnarly as they look in programs like tour of duty like you have the music blasting and them getting sideways or no tour of duty is they had all ueys you know this is another one of our culture shocks because we went through all our training with americans flying ueys they had experimental aircraft they had chinooks at that point the ch-53 delta models had come out but they were going to the marine corps but still we were trained up on those different helicopters so when it comes time, after we leave our safe house, where all the whores and everything were, we go up to the airport and they take us there and drop us off. And they say, there's your ride. Well, it's, it was a South Vietnamese Air Force, the 219th Special Operations Squadron, which 
had South Vietnamese flying old H-34 Sikorsky. They only had one door. If you're facing the front, the door's on the right-hand side. On the left-hand side, they had two windows, and there would be another window past the door on the right-hand side. So that's the first culture shock. It's like, wait a minute. We never saw these before. We didn't train these things. And then they had Sikorsky nine-cylinder engines in them, which were the old rotary engines for B-17s. So it's huge. And when it started, have you ever heard the B-17s when they would start? They would cock, <laughs> they sputter. Yeah. Are you talking about the B-17 bombers that they used in World War II? Exactly. That engine Jesus. was in the Sikorsky H-34 helicopter flown by the South Vietnamese Air Force. And we're sitting there and this thing's coughing and sputtering because it takes a while for them to get, to get revved up, right? And we're going like, holy shit. And they're flying South Vietnamese. They never told us we were going to be working with South Vietnamese Air Force. You know, it, it turns out they were remarkable. They were fearless. And later on, we preferred the old Sikorskys because they could take more hits than the UE could. And the South Vietnamese pilots were just amazing men, good aviators. And I'm alive today. Our recon team survived many times thanks to their fearless aviation skills. Can you remember the first time you went across the fence on your first mission? Oh, yeah. Well, the very first one was we did a couple of, um, we inserted the Air Force sensors. And it was basically, they had a central pod that had to be buried, had an antenna. And then I had a coaxial cables. And I forget how long they were because I was new on the team and I was in charge of security, either north or south of where they were putting them in alongside of the trail. But we had to put those in, put the coaxial cables from the center out to each two more transponders, one on each side. And then we left. So those are my first two missions across the fence. When we left, we hit, they shot at us a little bit, nothing major. Too easy. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, Spider Parks, my uh, old team has gone, hey, man, you've done these missions. We had a practice mission uh, in the Ashall Valley where we didn't make contact. The other team that we went in with made contact. And when we left, we got shot at. But no big deal. So he goes, you've been here like three months now. You don't have a combat infantry badge, but you get you earn it by being in combat with the enemy, get shot at. And then you get a special badge indicating that's one of your awards and decorations. So October 6th, we got inserted into a target called Echo 4. They had trackers on us. The very next day, we had trackers again. And then about 2 o'clock, we made contact. And this was um, heavy contact. By trackers, you, you're, you're talking about NVA sappers tracking you guys. trying to. They know you're there. They're trying to hunt you down. Correct. We Well, I don't know if there are sappers or not, but they had trackers. And in Laos they could hear our helicopters come in. So they would know generally where we were. And our first thing, when we got on the ground, we tried to lose the trackers. Well, somehow they located us and they were tracking us the second day of that mission. So about two o'clock on October 7th, uh, 68, we climbed up a small knoll and they hit us around two o'clock with a wave attack. But the knoll was such that when they came out of the vegetation, we could blow them literally back down the hill. And they could only bring so many people at one time. And we were in contact for a couple of hours until we made radio contact with um, tactical air and got air cover. And then we had gunships, A-1 Sky Raiders with napalm runs, 500-pound bombs, fast movers, which were the F-4 Phantom Jets. They would make gun runs, Gatling gun runs or weapons or bombs. We, at one point, and this is the one thing I'll never forget from that mission, my team leader had come over to me because we hadn't had any radio contact yet. And we were starting to go through a lot of ammo because they kept coming at us, you know? And he goes, look over there, look in the jungle. He said, do you see it? And I, I'm looking, I couldn't see, but he says, look, and he explained it graphically. He said, they're stacking up the dead bodies. They're trying to stack the dead bodies up so they can get on top and shoot down at us. And I was like, WTF? <laughs> yeah. So that was like, and you know, welcome to the welcome to the war, baby. That's when you realize kind of you're fighting against a different different breed of enemy, aren't you? Absolutely. 
what we didn't realize was that the North Vietnamese, they, they were told that we were, we were there like the French, that we were there to take over their land. Well, we weren't. We we're just supporting South Vietnam, even though they may have been a corrupt government. All of my people on my team, they were willing to die fighting for a corrupt government before they would live under the thumb of communism. Wow. What were the odds? So like, how many of you, how many of these guys trying to attack you when you're up on the knoll? And how did you blast them back down? Like what were you, what were you using before, like for those couple of hours before the air support arrived? Well, we had a six man team, three Americans, myself. I was the radio operator, assistant team leader. Don Wolken was the team leader. And then we had a new member of the team, uh, Jim Davison who was from New Orleans. And then we had three South Vietnamese. Fook was our point man. Sal was our, uh, our Vietnamese team leader, our counterpart to Don. And then we had Hep, our interpreter. When they hit us, they came at us from one side of the jungle and from the two others, not the full side, but like you figure a front and maybe another 90 degrees on each side. But they kept coming, but they could only bring so many bodies. And when they a lot of times you would hear them in the jungle first when they'd open fire on us and you wouldn't see the men come out of the jungle because you'd hear the rifle or them and we'd shoot them and blow them back down the hill. And that was with our car 15s with hand grenades. Later, we put out a couple of Claymore mines. When the helicopter finally came, we were in elephant. They found a, uh, a place where the helicopter could hover for 10 minutes. It was a South Vietnamese Air Force. Captain Tin was the pilot that day. And we had about 10 yards of elephant grass to go through. And it took us close to 10 minutes to get through it. And during that time, he hovered there. And while he's hovering, I directed gunships with gun runs around our perimeter. And then we finally threw all the men in the helicopter. And when we left, I was down to my last magazine and I'd fired over 600 rounds. I was down to my last hand grenade. Don Wolken was out. He's down to his last magazine also. And they, they came at us really hard. And even as we're going to the helicopter, you know, we're getting enemy contact. They were coming out of the jungle, but we couldn't, we did the gun runs. And the helicopter that pulled us out was an H-34 by, with Captain Tin. Uh, it had uh, 48 different bullet holes in it. 48 different bullet holes. Oh, yeah. And we had another King B. One of our teams had 100 holes in it. And nobody got wounded somehow because it's just, you know, aluminum siding. The rounds would just tear through it. And so you were directing in, you were directing in the, the air support during that time. Like how close could you direct the planes to your position? Like if they were dropping a bomb or running a, uh, running Gatling guns or whatever, if they were coming in blind, would you be, would you be calling out coordinates that were, you know, 10 meters away, 20 meters away? Did they have to be a hundred meters away? Like how close could you get them in? Well, it would depend on their ordinance. The helicopter gunships, when they made their gun runs, we would bring it in as close as possible because we knew that we would pop a smoke, they would see our smoke. And then from the smoke, we'd say north or to the east or west of our position. And with a gun run, they would come in very close, within 20 meters. And then the A-1 Sky Raiders, which was a single propeller aircraft, they would go a little further out, but they had the 500 pound bombs, uh, napalm, cluster bomb units. And so when they dropped that, we would push it out a little bit more, depending on the jungle vegetation, which side the enemy was, was coming at us from. Then we had the fast movers, the jets. And when they made their gun runs, again, they'd be a little further out because they were coming in so fast. There are times when we, uh, there's a fact on that mission, when we were at the helicopter, getting to the helicopter, we had a couple of gun runs from gunships that came in and they're making a gun run and shell casings came down and landed in my collar from the helicopters that were that close to us. So at first it's like, ah, oh, shit, my neck's burning. But then it's like, wait a minute, these are shell cases from our guys. Thank you. That's happy pain. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's good to know that they, were, they had your back, literally. Was this the same time when you make was he had a backpack on and he, he got like shot four times at Letourneau? <laughs> yeah, the Frenchman, Doug Letourneau. Yes, sir. He was on another team when that happened. In fact, it was his first mission. They'd been on the ground two or three days and it was like afternoon, early afternoon. They had taken a break. So when Doug stood up 
NVA opened fire and shot him in the back four times. They put him right on his face. He landed on his face really hard, and <laughs> he thought he was dead. But the rounds that he was carrying the uh, PRC-25 radio, the FM radio that we use as our primary uh, communication with the uh, air assets. The four rounds went through the radio, went through the rucksack, through his shirt. Each one broke the skin on his back, and then they ran out of energy. Doug jumped up, and the NVA were gone. They thought he was dead. He thought he was dead, but he didn't realize just how lucky he was. That night, he took a shower. He uh, took his boot off because he kept his uh, pants inside his boots, and the four rounds went down into his boot. And uh, he saw it around. He threw him outside in the sand. <laughs> oh, you're keeping those, aren't you? Yeah, that's that's a memento. I would have had him framed. I would have had him painted in gold and framed. Are you kidding? <laughs> yeah, I would have had them dangling around my neck or something. So that, just so people ask me the story, so I could retell it. Oh, these, are oh, these dangling around my neck. Oh, yeah. Well, so I was in Vietnam and uh, got shot four times. <laughs> Don't worry about it. Yeah. You talk about the helicopter extractions and uh, most of the time you'd be jumping into the helicopter and climbing through the thing and then and then burning off as quickly as you could but sometimes you would be lifted out of the jungle by rope and dragged through the trees wouldn't you can you tell me about that because getting a, a landing zone was difficult sometimes particularly when the enemy would attack us we would not have a, a landing zone big enough that a helicopter could come in and land or the, uh, we had triple canopy a lot of times, which was 150 feet in sheer vegetation with three different levels of jungle vegetation, trees, growth, vines. Even if you had a hold that a helicopter could get down, you had to have enough maneuverability and room to carry the weight to get out of that 150 foot hole to get out. So we developed a technique of extraction by rope. So the very early days, the Americans would carry a six foot piece of rope. You would put that around your waist and you tie it down and then you have a D ring that you hook into the knot. And then they'd have a 150 foot piece of rope with a sandbag on it and one D ring. It would come down and you would hook into it, that D ring. And then we carried a D ring on our shoulder that we had to, to hook into. And uh, so that way, if you got shot, or if you hit a tree, you would stay on the rope. And yes, there was a lot of times where they would be lifting us up. Instead of going all the way up to 150 feet to get us out of the jungle, they would be taking gunfire and they would leave. And then those of us on the rope would become human pinballs, ricocheting off the of trees. We lost the Americans that way. And some of the Vietnamese team members that uh, died when they were getting extracted that way due to the sheer force of being impacted by a tree on extraction. It seems almost comical thinking about humans being dragged through the trees, pinballing off. Of course, it's like, it would be horrific if you're on the end of that rope. Oh my goodness. There was an incident where you almost died, wasn't there? There was. I had repelled into a target. And on the way down the rope, I could hear people talking to each other, which means we're compromised. So when I got on the ground, I signaled the mission was off. And then I unhooked, helicopter left. And when I was down there, the people were talking back and forth. And then I saw an NBA soldier. We had, I had a brief exchange of fire with him. And I don't know, I shot an M79 round over there. And I think I got him with that. But they came back to pull me out. They dropped the rope down. I hooked in. They were shooting now at the helicopter. So the helicopter took off before I could hook in my D-ring here. And as I'm coming up, I'm holding on to the rope of my, with the crock of my arm, and I'm shooting at the NVA. Now I can see a couple NVA soldiers shooting at us. And then I had thrown the hand grenade down, M79 round, went through the magazines, and I got pulled through some of the treetops. So I'm, I did a little ricochet, you know, did my tilt thing, bouncing off the trees and stuff. And then when I got, came out, I hadn't hooked in yet. And because we had bounced around on the trees, the crux of my arm was get, had been bloodied from the, uh, the impact, and just from the rope rubbing against it. So I traded arms, that got sore, and the helicopter went up to around 5,000 to 6,000 feet, whatever. And so I went to change arms. 
and I got hit an air pocket and it flipped me upside down. All my, my web gear and my backpack, as I'm upside down, it all came down on my throat. And all of a sudden I couldn't breathe. And all I had was the Swiss seat hooked to my D-ring that's hooked to the 150 foot piece of rope. And I'm signaling to Henry King, who was on that mission with him. I'm signaling to Henry, get that chopper down, you know? And the rope on my leg slipped down to my knees and I had my knees spread and then it slipped further to my feet. I had my feet spread like a New York City hooker, just hanging there upside down. All the while, I'm losing. I'm getting ready to pass out. I had my life flash before my eyes. I had my, my girlfriend from kindergarten, Dolores. I saw her. I saw the front page headline that said, local boy died as a Vietnam. Well, it's, it's a lie. I died in Laos. And I was concerned about the inaccuracy. And I can see the front page of the newspaper. It was below the fold. Because in the early days, everybody from Trenton, New Jersey, who died in Vietnam was above the fold because the local boy dying in war. So I was pissed about that. And other things I saw that I passed out. And I thought I may have felt elephant grass. And Captain Tuong, the South Vietnamese Air Force pilot who was flying, had been descending, but I didn't realize it because I was getting ready to pass out. So I did pass out. Henry King came out, took off my web gear, picked me up, threw me in a helicopter, literally threw me in. I remember my head bouncing off the metal floor. I'm going, oh, shit. Well, wait a minute. Oh, I'm still alive. <laughs> oh my goodness. And then you say so you get back, you get back to the base and you get told off because you've left, left your gear. And then you're going on a mission the next morning. Yes, sir. We turned around, went back. <laughs> no rest for the week. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. What was the, the mission the next day? Because that was, you get sent out to catch a POW or catch a, one of the enemy and bring them back, don't you? I, you know, I forget what the mission was, but we, I, we, I, we went back, we uh, had another a regular team because Henry King was an additional team member. We got shot out the next day. And then eventually I forget if it was the second or the third day later, we had bad weather in the afternoon. We went out, got inserted into a target. So we were on the ground for five days. And that was one where we got on the ground. We had a wiretap set up. We had an ambush set up. They didn't know where we were. They were looking for us down by the LZ, but we moved much further away. And the enemy, they were just passing by. So I get on the radio and called Covey and said, hey, I gave him the code. We'll have a POW. We'll be back at the primary LZ in one hour. And the Covey, who was Spider Parks, my old team leader, the Covey rider goes, um, don't do anything. I'm at 10,000 feet. I can't see the mountain you're on, let alone see an LZ. And during that brief time that we were on the ground, the weather was socked in. That led to us moving into the night, we went up a stream bank, and at the end, uh, we went up a little embankment. And that's the night where the NVA came by and touched my boot. Yeah, so the, you, you guys went up the stream because you were being hunted by the NVA that had dogs. So, so you're trying to lose. Uh, we, uh, because at one point, we could hear the dogs coming, and we knew eventually they would get our scent from the LZ, and they would follow to the ambush site, and then from there, they'd follow us. So when we came to the water, I had the team go in and then do false tracks off of the water, slow them down. And then we put down a patterned mace 
black pepper. So when the dogs hit that with their nose, that would foul their nose. And that night we moved for maybe an hour or so in the dark up that stream bank because Sal, my counterpart, could now I'm the team leader. This is November 68. Sal had climbed a tree and said there were hundreds of NVA with lanterns and we could hear the dogs coming for us. And they were looking really hard, but we were able to stay far enough ahead, <clears throat> ahead of them that we got up uh, and were able to climb that embankment. And so that night, two soldiers went past us in the stream and they ran out of fuel in their lantern. So they turned around and came back and they're walking down and I could hear them talking. And then Hep, my interpreter, coughed right when they were right alongside me. And I'm facing the stream. So we had eight men. The other eight men were in a circle, but I'm facing the stream. And this is where he crawled up. And only when the wind moved, when the wind moved, he would move. When him, finally, he touched my boot. I heard him go, I could hear him catch his, catch his breath. And I'm sitting there with my feet up, like pointing my gun. If he had moved too quickly, I would have just shot him. But he didn't move. He waited until the wind moved. They backed down. Whenever the wind moved, he would move down the hill. I could hear him moving. Got in the stream. He went that away in the morning at first light, before first light, we got the hell out of there. So just to clarify, he touched your boot. He was that close to you, but he didn't see you. Right, because it's so dark, you could do this, and you don't see your hand. You could feel the wind, but you can't see it. And that's how dark it was with triple canopy at night, and it was raining. You mentioned one of your guys climbing up a hill and seeing all the lanterns and things. So there were a lot of NBA around you. But then didn't you guys come across some Russians? Yeah, a night later, because after that incident, the next day we climbed that mountain to avoid the enemy. And we didn't want any contact because, you know, uh, Covey had flown over and said, hey, we're still socked in. We can't even see the mountain. Mm -hmm. So you wouldn't be able to call in the, the air support. Tack air, right. And if we made contact, they couldn't get the helicopters in to pull us out. So they told us, get high and just avoid contact. Well, that second night, we were up there uh, several mountains away. A side of the mountain lit up with lights. looked like in the jungle, looked like Broadway to us. And the Russians flew in aircraft that they were doing resupply to the NVA soldiers that were there. And I could hear the Russians talking on the radio. So we called for TAC Air, hoping we could shoot those Russians down. But uh, TAC Air sometimes is like the police. You never, they're never there when you need them. <laughs> <laughs> Wasn't that like the first actual confirmation that the Russians, like you, everyone knew that they were supplying the North Vietnamese army, but that was the first confirmation that you actually knew they were in there working alongside them, right? Yeah, we knew they were there. And we also knew that they had trained in North Vietnamese Air Force, the Communist Air Force, how to fly. Now, years later, there was a, uh, a YouTube presentation where the Russians had a reunion and in it, they talked about the eight or nine Russians who died in the Russian secret war in Vietnam. And they said they had more than 3000 troops that served in the war. And a majority of them were cannon cockers, anti-aircraft, artillery, uh, rockets, and some, of course, trained the North Vietnamese to fly their aircraft. As the war went on, they had more anti-aircraft weaponry that continued to come further south into Laos, which would include you know, machine guns. But they had ACAC. You see in the World War II movies when they're flying over London mm. or Germany. And they have the anti-aircraft flak, which goes up and explodes at a certain elevation. Then the shrapnel knocks out planes. Mm. Well, they had that trying to knock out our helicopter. So the Russians were very involved with that. When you when you guys were up on that mountain and the, um, the weather eventually cleared and the choppers came in to extract you, it all kicked off, didn't it? Yeah, right. Uh, and actually what we did was when the, the covey told us the weather was improving and we went back down the mountain in an effort to try to continue the mission. So we went down, set up an RON that night. But again, they had trackers. We heard them come back with the dogs. The dogs were out there, but they didn't get us. And then in the morning, this was our fifth day on the ground. I had a tooth that broke when I was eating one of my meals. And we asked for an extraction. Another team made contact. So they delayed pulling us out. And then when we got 
time to be pulled out, the NVA came hard at us and at the air assets. And uh, we went out under heavy enemy fire and went back. They pulled my tooth out, went back to my team, cleaned up, and then we got another target the next day. That target the next day wasn't any ordinary target, though, was it? <laughs> no, they kept us busy. This is quite a famous story about three missing divisions of North Vietnamese oh. <laughs> Army. So we're talking around 100,000 soldiers. No, only 30. Okay, so yeah, yeah. let's not get too Hollywood <laughs> on it just yet. So we're talking about you going in <laughs> to find 30,000 missing enemy soldiers. So you're not just trying to find any odd sort of camp or anything like that. You're trying to find guys that want to kill you, 30,000 of them. Talk me through that. Well, at that point, we had been, as our team was sent down to FOB6 at Honak Tau, and their missions were in Cambodia. So we had been used to layoffs, which had the mountains, triple canopy. Here, it was more flat. It was Cambodia, maybe double canopy. Some places had triple canopy. And the rules of engagement, we had no A1 Sky Raiders. We had no fast mover jets. The only support we had, which was excellent, was the Air Force 20th SOS, Special Operations Squadron, the Green Hornets. So <laughs> we're there temporarily. I go in and meet the uh, S3 for operations, and the, and the camp commander was there, Lieutenant Colonel Drake. I walk in, I'm only in E4, and he sees that I'm in E4. I'm in uniform. We're in, we're in camp, right? What does E4 mean? Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, the enlisted personnel, you start out as an enlisted one. That's the private. Then you're a private. Then you're a private first, private first class, which is an E3, and you get one stripe. And then you have an E4, which is a specialist. In my case, it was a specialist fourth class E4 rank. And he goes, you're only an E4. This is a billet, meaning the commanders of a recon team is supposed to be E8s and E9s. And I said, well, there weren't any available. And I've run several missions up north. How can I help you? So he settled down. And then the S3 goes, well, this is your mission for tomorrow. We're trying to find three NVA missing divisions, the first, the third, and the seventh. And we can't find them. CIA lost them. DIA can't find them. And who else knows who else was looking? I was stunned to think that they would lose three NVA divisions because each division had 10,000 men. So this is Thanksgiving Day. And so we were up studying late into the night, looked at photographs. The commander was there. He says, look, tomorrow's Thanksgiving, you know. Before you go on that target, I'll send you out a Thanksgiving dinner. So you guys get into target, find these guys and come back. But just in case you stay overnight, we'll give you a Thanksgiving dinner. Oh, okay, cool. So the next morning, we're up at first light. We fly out to the base. Before we launch, here comes a helicopter with our Thanksgiving dinner. So we had turkey, mashed potatoes. It got filled up. <laughs> Lovely. And a few hours later, or whatever time frame was, they inserted us into the target. And so this is Cambodia. It was flat. There was thin vegetation. So you could see 100 yards, maybe 150 meters easily. So we moved for a while. We came up to a base camp. The recon guys had smiled on us because we walked in. There were still fires burning. And one fire still had a pot on it. And the, and the Vietnamese on my team felt that one of the divisions had just left and another one was coming in. So we found the base camp, and at some point, Sal pointed out that from the south, there were NVA soldiers, full uniform, with hats, AK-47s, running at port arms, coming back to the base camp. So we began falling back towards the LZ. I called for an extraction, said, hey, I need gunships down here. We found some NVA. We're not quite sure where they're from. The first NVA came at us from the south. Then there was more that came from the north. So we assumed that the point and the tail on us were coming after us. So we're doing a tactical withdrawal, firefighting, shooting our M79 grenades. At one point, we put down a Claymore mines with five-second fuses, put it up against a tree. The Claymore mine has like 450, 500 ball bearings. It's anti-personnel mine. So we put it, pulled a fuse, and then we would withdraw back. It would explode, and it slowed down the NVA coming for us. And then the, the Air Force came back. They made several gun runs and they were able to pull us out. 
only by the skin of our teeth. Jesus. It was, it was hairy. We had, had they not come, they would have caught us and they would have overrun our ass. No question about it. Cause they were coming at us heavy, but the Claymore mines or M79s or hand grenades were able to slow them down enough that the helicopter get in and that helicopter came in quick. We were on it and out on one chopper. We didn't do two helicopters. When you're on the chopper, are you still, are you still firing your weapon? Absolutely, because the area the helicopter landed in was the ground was still moist because it had been raining a couple of days prior. And when the NVA would come out, they're running like port arms. And when they would come out of the jungle. How many of them? Well, in this case, I only saw three or four, but there were two that were right in front of me. Me and a door gunner were side by side. And when they came out, they would see us. And they're trying to stop with their, with their feet. And they were stopping so hard that clumps of mud from their boots were going up into the air, hitting the propellers. And they're trying to come around with their AKs and me and a door gunner would hit them and literally pick their bodies up and just blew them back into the jungle. And that's happening as we're leaving. My other teammates said there were others coming out of the jungle that they saw that I didn't see because I was focused on the guys coming right at us. So we left, got back to the Air Force base and they go, hey, you're right on time. Let's have some Thanksgiving dinner. <laughs> so we went in, had Thanksgiving dinner with the Air Force. And as we're wrapping up our dinner, this is like two, three o'clock in the afternoon now. Somebody came out and said, hey, you know, your base commander wants your after action report now. Get your ass down to Saigon. So we jumped on the helicopter, go to Saigon. I give him the update. He goes, uh, hey, man, we're in luck. It's the time for dinner. Let's go. So we had three Thanksgiving dinners. <laughs> you got that third one, didn't you? Because you uh, because they were happy with you. You found the two divisions. Oh yeah. The good news is we found two div- of the three divisions. The bad news is we found them. We were, thanks God for the Air Force that they hadn't gotten there as quickly as they did. We'd be Cambodian fertilizer today. It's <sighs> crazy. It's like it's so yeah. It's such another world <laughs> in so many ways. You you guys are all about setting out ambushes. Uh, you walked into one or almost walked into one in some elephant grass. Can you tell me about what happened there? We got inserted by a king bee on Christmas Day. They were supposed to insert us on top of a mountain. But when they inserted us, because there had been reports of a lot of new Russian anti-aircraft weaponry that were above the mountains, he flew in very low, like nap of the earth. And then when he came to our target area, he flew up, up a valley. And then there was these mountains and we flew up it. And halfway up, there was a little knoll. He set us down and we got out. Well, it was elephant grass, like you said. We were going through the elephant grass and eventually fuck our point man broke through and they were going into the jungle area. He made contact with the enemy. And so we fell back into the elephant grass and we're on like the little thin ridge. And it had elephant grass, which again was 10 to 15 feet tall. And on the south slope, it was too steep to go down. On the west slope, it was too steep. Northwest, it was still straight down. And then to the northeast, there was a little finger of land, but it had elephant grass. And Lynn Black was on that mission with me. And Lynn goes, there's no gunfire there. That's not a good sign. They might be waiting ambushes. Then we got a phone call, radio transmission from Spider Parks, who was the cubby rider. By that time, we were called him. We're communicating back and forth. He's calling in the air assets. And he also called the King Bees to come back, the South Vietnamese Air Force to come back and get us. He says, I just got an intel report. Do not go to the Northeast. There's an ambush waiting for you. We only been on the ground a short while, but they set up an ambush. We didn't go there. So while we're there, we could see enemy soldiers coming south of us and we had thrown hand grenades. We fired some rounds at them and the elephant grass caught on fire and the wind coming up the Canyon pushed the fire up the mountain. And then they started fires on the West and on the other side of us where the fire is burning the elephant grass. At one point, we're trying to push it back. Lynn and Bubba Shore were putting in blocks of C4 to literally try to blow the fire back down the mountain as we're waiting for an extraction. So finally, the King Bee with Captain Tuong, the same uh, pilot who, when I was upside down, saved my life by landing back in November. This is Christmas Day now, 1968. He uh, came in, 
and he flew from the top and he came down sideways and we're on the ground. I looked up, I could see Captain Tuong and I go, ah, for the, for the first time, I felt a sense of relief because he saved my ass before and he saved our team another time in between all that. So the prop wash blew the smoke and the flames back. We jumped on the King Bee. As he lifted off the hill, we went, became consumed in fire. And of course, they were firing at us in the helicopter. And it was like, Merry Christmas. So we got back to the base that night. The follow-up for me on a personal basis was, I had a shower and I heard some cheap little radio playing, Silent Night. And I'm sitting there going, I'm thinking about, well, it's, that's right, it's Christmas. I forgot all about it, you know? Thought about past Christmases and my family in New Jersey. I really said to myself, I wonder if you're going to see your birthday. So this is December 25th, 1968. My birthday was January the 19th. We had so many close calls. I was wondering if I was going to see your birthday number 23 or not. Wasn't it by chance that someone stumbled across a channel that had NVA talking and worked out that there was an ambush there? Well, yeah. Yeah, the ambush was to our northeast. And it was the Frenchman, Doug Letourneau, who got shot in the back four times on his first mission a month earlier. He was scanned. They, they were in another target, not close to us, but they, he was just on a break and they were scanning the channels. And he heard these people talking, but they're talking to Vietnamese. He put his interpreter on. And the interpreter goes, they're talking about Spike Team Idaho. And Doug really said, what are they saying? He said, well, they're going to they're gonna set up an ambush because they knew we couldn't go to the west. We couldn't go south. We made contact to the east. But Lynn and I were thinking about the northeast. We, you know, when you're on the ground, you want to get the mission if you can. That was our primary goal. But Lynn goes, you know, it's too quiet. And sure enough, like a minute or two later, Spider Parks gets there. He's flying in the uh, cubby. And then he goes, I have an intel report. Do not go to the northeast. Do we, um parades and all sorts when people returned after like World War One, World War Two, and that kind of thing. What what was it? It was such a controversial war in Vietnam. What what was it like for you guys when you returned? Were you treated like heroes? Were you spat on at the airport? Did you hear about that? Like, wh- how were you guys treated? Well, we weren't treated very nicely. Personally, when I came back, I had no. I just had people give you that that stare, like, "Oh, you're a baby killer," kind of stare. Like they looked down on you, but they were hippies, or people that were part of the, the peace movement and the peace, some of the peace movements were riddled with uh, communists. That was their way of attacking the war was from the streets of America. And so we never took that to heart. Uh, but there are other guys who had were spit on. In fact, Lynn Black, when he came back from one of his tours of duty, he had a little 25 caliber Browning pistol that you could put in your hand and you couldn't tell you had a gun. And he was in a hurry to get somewhere. He, he lives in Washington State. He's at the airport, I guess Seattle. And when he got off the airplane, he somehow got into an outside area where there was um, a corridor outside. And four or five men came up to him and said, hey, you're back from Vietnam. You got all that money. We're going to relieve you of that. So you don't have to carry it around. So Lynn pulled his little 25 out, put around in the chamber. And the guy goes, you can't fool me. That's a cigarette lighter. And Lynn Black put her around between his legs and they left him alone. But other guys were spit upon, things like that. But personally, I never had anybody spat upon me. Because of what we suffered, people today know that. And every veteran that's been to war since from our country, when they come home, they're treated well, as they should be. And the American public separates the war from the politics, the warrior from the politicians. Mm. John Schreck and Matt, thank you so much for coming on the show. And, and most importantly, thank you for your service. Oh, thank you, sir. Congratulations on your wedding. I have a good one when, the, when you get back to New Zealand. Thanks very much. And uh, keep up the good work with your podcast. John's book, Across the Fence, is an outrageous true story from his time behind enemy lines during the Vietnam War. I got it from Amazon.com. But, John, you've got a website as well, don't you? Yes, sir. We have a website, uh, www.sogchronicles.com. My three books are there. And if you go to the blog, we've do we've done podcasts with Jocko Willink. And we've done deep interviews there. And I'm interviewing SOG veterans now on SOG 
cast. They're all available on my website. Just go to the blog section and there's hours of interviews there. And believe me, my stories on a scale one to 10, I'm about a five or a six. We interview guys that are nine and 10. It just Their stories are much more amazing than mine. Well, I'm going to go and check those out myself, I think. And Jocko's podcast is epic <laughs> as well. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you have a person in mind that you think would make a great guest, just slide into my DMs on Instagram or Twitter. Let me know. I'll look them up and see if we can make a good podcast.